0: Today we're going to take the path seldom taken, okay? Uh, We're going to go into some material that not too many of us probably have looked at in any detail. Uh, We've been focusing, of course, the whole year on belief, our Christian tradition, the Methodism within that. And in particular, the last few weeks, we've been looking at what is distinctive, uh, not necessarily unique, but what is distinctive about our Methodist tradition, uh, what makes us stand out and be somewhat different. Not, again, that we have beliefs that are fundamentally different, but we do tend to emphasize certain things. But if you remember from a few weeks ago, our discipline affirms we stand in the mainstream of Christian tradition. But the thing we've never done is actually talked about that. What is the mainstream? What is the Christian tradition that we claim? And so today we want to kind of look at that. The mainstream is represented in the Book of Discipline and our doctrinal standards by two foundational documents. One comes to us from the Church of England back in the 1500s. It's a document that we inherited. It's a document that Wesley and the Methodist movement lived within. And then, as we'll see, Wesley revised it for the Methodist Church in America. It is called the Articles of Religion, written back in the 1500s. The other document comes to us from the other side of the United Methodist Church, the United part, EUB, Evangelical United Brethren, which is the Confession of Faith, which I will share with you of the two, I think is probably the far more important. We're going to look at each real quick in general, and then we're going to actually walk through kind of what they teach us. First of all, the articles of religion. These are not Methodist. We inherited them. Uh, They are an expression of the Anglican faith. Uh, They express that via media that we've talked about on several occasions. Uh, They're first written in the year 1552. Uh, This is after Henry VIII has died. And you've got Thomas Cramner trying to nail down what is this via media. It's not Catholic. It's not Protestant. It's a mixture of the two, which begs the question, then what does that puppy look like, you know? If it's not either one, but it's some kind of a hybrid, you need to kind of lay it out. It was not implemented, because right at the time it was written, uh, the, the king of the time, who was fif- 15 years old, died, and Bloody Mary came to the throne. So this is in the height of that period when Catholics come to the throne and Protestants die. When a Protestant comes to the throne, Catholics die. It was a very, very difficult time in English history. They're adopted in 1563. During the reign of Elizabeth, and they're, they're kind of cut down a little bit from a larger number, they are part of what is called the Elizabethan settlement. And the Elizabethan spe- settlement, also called the Third Way, also called the Via Media, becomes the compromise. It becomes the definition if you're not Catholic and you're not Protestant, you're Anglican, what does that mean? And so the 39 Articles of Religion basically laid that out. They reflect times. They reflect a turbulent history in this, uh, um, this period that they were going into. For example, some of them, any Catholic in the world living in the 1500s could accept. For example, when you talk about the Trinity, Christology, and original sin, the beliefs there are essentially in union with the Roman Catholic Church. There's no distinction there. Others are Lutheran, particularly when it speaks about the gospel and speaks about justification. The Cramner and uh, the ones who produced this picked up on the language and the thought of Martin Luther from the Reformation, and that came into it. On the other hand, they're Calvinists when speaking about the sacraments. Actually, they were much more Calvinist before John Wesley got a hold of them. Okay? John Wesley cut 15 out, and most of the Calvinistic stuff hit the cutting room floor. But still, there's Calvinistic thought in there. During the lifetime of Wesley, 200 years later, two centuries later in the 1700s, basically running the entire spectrum of the 1700s, Wesley and the movement he started, the Methodists, operate doctrinally under the guidelines of the 39 Articles. Uh, They're not saying anything new or different in terms of they're not rejecting their heritage. They would affirm the 39 Articles. Uh, And this becomes a statement for, for Methodist belief. But things changed in America because of a little thing called the Revolutionary War. We won, okay? And one of the problems of the Church of England is who's the head of the Church of England? The queen or the king, right? So one of the articles of religion said that you owe ultimate loyalty to the queen or the king as the head of the church. That's not going to fly in the colonies after (laughs) 1776, you know. So part of what Wesley was doing is, knowing that the Methodists were going to go their own way, uh, he sent representatives over, and he sent several things. One of the things he sent was an edited version, simplified, stripped-down version of the articles for the new church. And so he revised them for the church. You actually have a handout... Back there of each of the ones he removed and the ones he edited. We won't get into that much detail, but thought you might be interested. He knocked out 15. So we went from 39 to what? 24. He adds another one. Actually, he didn't. The Church in America added another one, which replaced the one about being loyal to the queen. Who would we be loyal to? Right. Well, actually, the American government. Okay, So we have one in there about that. We just sort of replaced. Again, you have a handout if you want to look at that. Wesley's revisions edit out a couple of things. For example, we know that, that, that Wesley's viewpoint on s- some key issues, particularly with what it means to be human, who God is, and what salvation means, free will, Arminianism, and all that, was very much at odds with the Calvinistic view. Now, a lot of the Calvinistic view had gotten in in the 1500s. Wesley just exited it right out in the 1700s. Okay? So if you look at the 15 that hit the floor, Not all the Calvinistic stuff, but a lot of it hit the floor. The other thing that hit the floor is writing in the 1500s, just after Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, there was a lot of violently anti-Catholic. They called it Popish, Romanish. You know, He cut a lot of that stuff out because 200 years later it didn't fit. Some of it is still in there, but most of it he cut out. This is odd. Wesley did not add. This is at the end of his life, you know. Uh, He's been in ministry since the 1720s. This is in 1784. So he's been operating for 60 years. He did not put a single Methodist belief in the Articles of Religion. He didn't add anything, which is kind of remarkable. He didn't add anything about Armenianism, and he let stand a view of religious sin that he himself probably would not have agreed with. But he let it stand. He didn't say anything about prevenient grace. He didn't say anything about uh, sanctification. Now, when we look at the confession of faith, this stuff will be expressed, but it's not in the Articles of Religion. Uh, just to be honest and open about this, there are two other documents that we will not cover because they're quite expansive That in which Wesley's actual beliefs are laid out. They are, in fact, the standard sermons. There's 52 of them. Uh, Wesley realized that most of his preachers did not go to seminary. They were not ordained. They were late preachers. So the question was, where do they learn theology? Where do they learn beliefs? And so he had a series of standard sermons that laid out his understanding of the basic Christian faith, uh, everything from the Sermon on the Mount to entire sanctification, prevenient grace, all the beliefs were there. And basically, he then edited those, gave it to his preachers and said, read them and preach, not necessarily preach that sermon, but preach the content therein. The other is he had notes in the New Testament. He'd actually taken the New Testament, he'd made commentary on it, and so those two things were given to the preachers. Now, uh, those are wonderful things to read if you've got about three years to work, work your way through it, okay? 1784, Baltimore. The Methodists yeah. gathered at the Christmas conference, and they created the Methodist Episcopal church the Methodist denomination of the United States as a part of that they formally adopted Wesley's revision of the Articles of Religion and Wesley's standard sermons and Wesley's note in the New Testament and they basically said these are the doctrinal standards of the people that are called Methodist the General Conference of 1808 thought that was a little not nailed down enough so they took it further and made the major revision that still stands. They established the articles as explicit statements of doctrine of Methodists. If you want to know what Methodist doctrine is, it is the Articles of Religion as revised. And they adopted something called. How many of you have never heard of the Restrictive Rule? Okay, you're about to learn about the Restrictive Rule. It's it's a great rule. The Restrictive Rule prohibits any change, alteration, or addition the articles themselves. You may not remove God from our beliefs. That's restricted. You may not move, remove Christ from our beliefs. That is restricted. Now, probably most of us would not remove those two, but there's some other things in there you and I might want to remove. I don't like the statement of original sin that's in there because I don't think it's Wesleyan at all. But can I remove it? No. It stands as part of the Christian tradition. Now, It further stipulated that we can't add anything else. Now, one of the things we're talking about is we did add the confession of faith in 1964. So we can add stuff. But the restrictor rule said this. We could not add anything that is contrary to the present, existing, and established standards of doctrine, which tells you what about the confession of faith. It was not contrary, Okay. It was just another expression of that. Here's the original preface, 1808, to the Articles of Religion. These are the doctrines taught among the people called Methodist, nor is there any doctrine whatever generally received among the people contrary to the Articles now before you. Which means if you want to know what Methodist doctrine is, where would you go? The Articles of Religion would be a great place to start. Confession of Faith, separate document. This comes from the other branch of, the, of our Methodist tree. Uh, this, the simple way of understanding this is some Methodists spoke English some and not German. Some Methodists spoke German and not English, and that kept them apart for two centuries because we couldn't worship together. So there was an English-speaking branch of Methodism, and there was a German-speaking branch of Methodism. And with the German-speaking, there were several churches, great leaders that combined together. Uh, But they formed eventually, about uh, 20-something years before our union, what was called the Evangelical United Brethren. Just think German-speaking Methodist, Pietists, But theology was very, very Wesleyan. They updated, and then they adopted their own version of the Articles of Religion. I don't know the details of the prior to this. This is the document we got. It's called the Confession of Faith. It is, in my opinion, I think the greatest document we've got in terms of doctrine. If I was going to say that there's one document that sh- that you would want to look at for what Methodists believe, it is clearly the Confession of Faith, for the reasons I'm going to share with you. Um, 1964, the United Methodist Church was formed where? Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. Not just Dallas, Dallas Texas. Campus. SMU campus where? Well, Moody Coliseum. Okay. The United Methodist Church was formed in 1964 by the union of these two traditions right here in Dallas, 68, right here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, now, at the union, the church explicitly said we're, going to, uh, we're not going to um, choose articles of religion versus the confession of faith. We're going to take both of them and we're going to put both of them in the discipline and we're going to say they are both standards. So in a few minutes as we're looking at particular topics, we'll be We'll be bioptic. We'll look at what one says and what the other says. Uh, it gives us a much richer view. Some observations about the, uh, the articles, and then I'm going to make some observations about the Confessions. The articles, they're written in the 1500s, and they reflect that language. There is nothing distinctively Methodist in them. There wasn't to start with, and Wesley did not add anything, but they do represent the belief system out of which Wesley himself emerged. They, remate, they represent that Anglican faith, they also reflect the language, the thought, and the conflicts of the age. Now, given that Catholics are killing methodists I mean, uh, you know that they're not the theory- Catholics are killing Protestants, Protestants are killing Catholics, what kind of rhetoric do you think you would find in articles of religion? Conflicting, Conflicting. polarizing, anti, okay? And in general, anti Catholic, pro Protestant. Even though we're not a Protestant church, Protestantism thought-wise was very much there. Uh, so we get some of the articles of religion are clearly anti-Catholic and reject. For example, uh, one of them, transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic belief that the, the bread and the wine literally change into the body and blood of Christ. That was held by Protestants to be a Romanish error and was rejected. We we don't view, we don't say transubstantiation, we stay, say say that's a good Baptist answer <laughs> yeah remember that's the other extreme what's the middle way? consubstantiation, consubstantiation. chili con carne you know with it is still grape juice and it is still bread spiritually it becomes the body and blood of Christ by the way that's Calvinistic John Calvin's view okay that got in there uh, the sacrifice of the mass that every time you celebrate the mass Christ is sacrificed again um, was rejected. The sinlessness of, for example, it's not the Virgin Mary, it is our Lady. So we're, you know, we're in the, the the late medieval period coming into the modern era, and we have the Mariology, the exaltation. That's clearly rejected. Other statements are clearly picking up on Luther, clearly picking up on John Calvin, clearly picking up on the Reformation and, and putting forward Reformation beliefs. For example, Scripture is primary. Sound vaguely familiar? Okay. That's one of the hallmarks of the the Protestant Reformation, that it is not what the Pope says. It is not what the church council said. It's not what the the magisterium office of the church says. It's what Scripture says. And who interprets Scripture? As Protestants, we would say, we do. Okay, There's a recent, uh, well, for example, one of the issues, remember Galileo? One of the things that Galileo gets slapped down for is Galileo was a very pious person. He argued from Scripture. And as a part of the Council of Trent just a few years before, the Roman Catholic Church says no individual may interpret the Scriptures. Who has the right to interpret the Scriptures? The Pope and the teaching office of the Church. So one of the things he got slapped down for was his view of Scripture, not just the telescope stuff. So all this is flying around this time. Adam's fall compromised uh, by human will. We would go with uh, the Protestant view. That bread and wine should be served to all the Lord's Supper because there was a point in history when the people got the what? And the priest got the what? The bread and the wine. The and the wine. Okay, yeah. That's ah, a basic fairness issue there. <laughs> uh, ministers could marry. Okay, Luther married. After he broke away from the church, he was a monk prior to that. These things are in there. So all that was in the... Doc- the oh, that, that's stuff we're not going to look at today, okay? Uh, some, of the, some of the articles are not doctrinal at all. They, they deal with the new situation because the church had always been loyal to Rome and to the Pope. When Henry VIII broke away, who is the church now loyal to? Henry VIII. And so there were some statements in there about if you're going to be Church of England, if you're going to be Anglican, uh, you, owe, you owe your fealty, not just in the matters of politics and the state and government, but in matters of faith to the, to the Pope. And uh, that was knocked out. Um, it's a very specific to England. Some observations about the confession. This is the one I, I think you'll find very refreshing. A, it's shorter. It's the Reader's Digest version. Okay, it's They parried it down to some key things that are wonderful. Secondly, It's much more modern. It was written in its present form in 1962, which means shortly before the Union. It does not reflect the conflicts of of the 16th century, so we don't find all that rhetoric going on there. Uh, There is no anti-Catholic statements in it whatsoever. Uh, It is much more Wesleyan and it's much more explicitly Methodist. So uh, here's the short version. The Articles of Religion lay out the Via Media. The Anglican uh, faith of the Church of England, the church into which Wesley is born and the Methodist movement is born. The Confession of Faith represents 400 years later, uh, and it lays out our distinctive Wesleyan beliefs and how we interpret that. So we're going to kind of go back and forth with that. So we're just going to go with some of these, some core issues. We're not going to try to cover them all because I'm sure you would like to have lunch today. (laughs) Uh, It starts with the Catholic part. Okay, this is stuff that any Roman Catholic or any Lutheran or any Calvinist or any Methodist in the 1500s would totally agree with. Uh, This goes back to the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, the Athanasian Creed, basic Christianity 101. There is but one living and true God. Nobody's going to pass out from shock on that one. Okay, everlasting without body or parts of infinite power, wisdom and love, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Remember where the visible and invisible language came from? The Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed left it a little bit vague, so the Nicene Creed kind of nailed that down further. So it's affirming our tradition. And in the unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, one usia from the Nicene Creed, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay. Now, we switch 400 years later from the EUB side. You would expect this to be more modern, more flowing, more contemporary. It is. We believe in the one true, holy, and living God, starts out pretty much the same, eternal spirit. That's modern language. Who is creator, sovereign, and preserver. Kind of updating that Trinitarian language. Of all things visible and invisible, still reaching back to the Nicene Creed. He is infinite in power, wisdom, justice, goodness, love, rules with gracious regard for the well-being and salvation of man and the glory of his name. Picking up there some of our Methodist heritage of of emphasizing the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. We believe in one God. This one God reveals himself as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ooh, careful. That could be the modalistic heresy (coughs) that God only appears to be three, that God is essentially one. But then it corrects it. Distinct but inseparable, eternally one in essence and power. Goes right back to the Athanasian Creed Picking up on our Trinitarian history. Article 2. This goes back in. 1500s. This is the Articles of Religion. Of the Word, the Son of God, who is made very man. So our beliefs focus first on God. But of course, as Christians, we have beliefs about Jesus. And those beliefs are second only to the beliefs about God. The Son, who is the Word of the Father, the very and eternal God, the one substance with the Father, Nicene Creed, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, Uh, again this is late middle ages early modern period and that the, the exaltation of Mary can be seen here so that two whole and perfect natures Romans 1 Paul's statement that is to say the Godhead and manhood were joined together in one person never to be divided whereof is one Christ very God very man truly suffered was crucified dead and buried reconciled the father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, original sin, but also for actual sins of men. So God does not just change the relationship with God. God actually changes us. That's justification and sanctification. Resurrection of Christ. We're still at the Articles of Religion, 1500s. Christ did truly rise again from the dead and took again his body with all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature. Now, why would you think in the 1500s you'd have to add this? This is the beginning of the modern era. And this is being questioned. It was questioned in the early church. It was also questioned in the 1500s. Wherewith he ascended to heaven. And there sets until the return. To judge all men the last day. Moving to the 20th century. The EUB statement. We believe in Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man. Starts very very traditionally. In whom the divine and human natures. Were perfectly and inseparably united. A little different language. Same thought. He is the eternal word made flesh. Gospel of John. The only begotten son of the Father. Gospel of John. Born of the Virgin Mary. Luke, Matthew, Apostles Creed. By the power of the Holy Spirit. A ministering servant. New language. An image for Jesus. Jesus is the servant. Ministering. He lived, suffered, died on the cross. He was buried, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven to be with the Father. From thence he shall return. Again, going back to the, to the Apostles' Creed. He is the eternal Savior and mediator who intercedes for us, and by him all men will be judged. We're going to complete the Trinity now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Going back to the 1500s, to the earlier document. The Holy Ghost. Uh, any of y'all ever raised on the King James? What was, what was the Holy Spirit called? Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, okay. Same time frame. It was just the language of the ear, so it reflects that. When we get to the 20th century document, would you expect to find that language? No. It's going to be gone. Instead, in the 20th century document, what would we have? We would have the Holy Spirit. Okay. Same thing, just different phraseology. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son is the one substance, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son. Now, the two things that I've put in red, does anybody know historically why those are important? Big brouhaha. The Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Church, East Church West Church, separated in the 11th century, but for a lot of reasons. But the the, the precipitating factor, the match that was drawn, was called the Filioque controversy. The Roman Church changed the creed, and in the Eastern Church, do you change the creed? No, change is a profane word in the Eastern Church. Okay, they changed the creed. How did they change the creed? They added. Philique in Latin, and the Son, and so this became sort of a big sticking point, which means our version of it, we're Western, not Eastern, with that. Moving to the 20th century, the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from, and is one in being with the Father and the Son, keeping the Western Church's view. He and and now we we get stuff that we do not see in the Articles of Religion. The articles of religion are are satisfied somebody to say who the Spirit is, but says nothing about what the Spirit does. The confession moves into, well, we believe in this Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Actually, it says here, he convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He leads men through faithful response to the gospel and to the fellowship of the church. He comforts, sustains, empowers the faithful, and guides them into all truth. Isn't that a beautiful way of phrasing that? Actually, the work of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does. Back when I was in seminary, the, the systematic professor would say of all the doctrines the young preachers did, that the, the one that always came out the shortest and was the most poorly written would be the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, because it's something that, that people would struggle with. Article 5, 1500s Articles of Religion, Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. We're going to run the Protestant flag up the pole here, okay? Lutheran, Calvinistic. The Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. We've talked about that earlier. We do not claim in our tradition that Scripture contains everything on everything, on science or history or anything like that. It contains what? What you need to know for salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor be proved thereby, is not to be required of any that it should be believed as an article of faith. Or be taught requisite and necessary to salvation. Take that Catholic Church. okay? Because the Catholic Church would affirm. Primarily it is the magisterium office of the church. That teaches. In the name of the Holy Scriptures we do understand. Those canonical books of the Old and New Testament. Of whose authority was never in doubt in any church. Then proceeds a list. Of the Old Testament as we have it, the New Testament we have it, and the original version before Wesley edited it, then named all the books that we would reject. Now it's interesting. This is called what do we call those books? The Apocrypha. Apocrypha. One of the problems the Protestant leaders had with the Apocrypha, other besides the fact that it was those were always considered to be secondary. That's what deuterocanonical means. But also a lot of those particular doctrines the Catholic Church had come up with that were particularly irritating to Protestants. 99% of that was coming out not of the New Testament or the Old Testament. It was coming from the Apocrypha. So the the thought was, we'll just cut their feet right out from under them. What you say is scripture that you base that on. It ain't scripture. So you can't base it on there. And that literally is true. Of the Old Testament. Now, there were among the radical Protestants a feeling that we were New Testament Christians. the, the, The far left of the movement. And they would say, therefore, we do not need the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament and we live under the New Testament. So there was a movement to get rid of it. So the Anglican church being that middle of the road says this. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New for both in the Old and New Testament everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. And it's that Jesus Jesus filter we read even the Old Testament in light of Christ who is the only mediator between God and man being both God and man. There. Therefore, they are not to be heard who feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. If you're going to put down the Old Testament, just head to the door. OK, because we don't we don't buy that. Although. The law given from God to Moses as touching ceremonies and rites does not bind Christians. Nor. Ought the civil precepts thereof to necessarily be received in any commonwealth. There's a lot in the Old Testament that would be worthless to us. Nevertheless, no Christian whatsoever is free from obedience to the commandments which are called moral. So, there we have the view that when we read the Old Testament, we're not interested in the s- temple sacrifices or, or all that kind of stuff. We're interested in the e- moral and ethical content of that. Today, we would have a much broader deal. Fast forward. 20th century, EUB statement. And by the way, this is the statement that finds its expression in some of the new creeds that have come out. We believe the Holy Bible, Old and New Testaments, reveals the word of God. And again, this qualifying statement, so far as it is necessary for our salvation, different language, but the same idea, it is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule. That's the word canon, standard, measuring stick. If you want to measure what is or is not Christian, the Bible is that, and guide, like a map, tells us what we need to know about what? About faith, what we believe, and about praxis, how we live the Christian life. So our tradition affirms that's what we find in Scripture. Again, the, the Protestant piece winds up in here, even here. Whatever is not revealed in or established by the Holy Scriptures is not to be made an article of faith, nor is it to be taught as necessary for salvation. Just a little piece of the Reformation still there. Article 7, back to the 1500s, articles of religion on original sin. This is the, some of the Calvinistic view, a little bit. Original sin stands not in the falling of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk. Do y'all remember who Pelagius was? Uh, one of the early church leaders who basically argued that we were not so corrupt as to ever be at the point where we could not respond to God. Now, what do you know about John Wesley's beliefs? Pretty close, okay? John Wesley was accused multiple times of being Pelagian, okay? Because of his affirmation of free will. But we c- he kept Article 7 in, even though I'm sure it irritated him. Uh, but it is the corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered by the offspring of Adam. It's like a genetic kind of thing was the understanding at the time. Thereby man is very far gone from original Righteousness. And of his own nature inclined to evil. And that continually. In the eastern church the idea was. Is that we were created in the image of God. But at the fall that image became distorted. And so what God does. God works within our life restoring that image. And the western church. They had a a different understanding of that. It was much more legalistic. And so this view expresses the the, the western view. Free will. Uh, Wesley probably would not have liked. This definition of free will but he left it anyway. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God in Christ preventing us that we may have a good will and working within us when uh, when we have that good will. Move it forward, 20th century, the EUB statement. And now we're going to get the Wesleyan spin on this because four centuries later, Wesleyan view of this, this, this one is different. Starts the same. We believe man is fallen from righteousness and apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is destitute of holiness and inclined to evil. Classic statement of original sin. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In his own strength without divine grace, man cannot do good works, pleasing or acceptable to God. Again, right on. However, here comes Methodism. We believe, however, that man influenced and empowered by the Holy Spirit, grace, is responsible in freedom to exercise his will to good. That's much more in line with Wesley's thinking. Justification. Articles of Religion, 1500s. We are counted righteous before God only by the merit, only for the merit of our, Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by faith and not by our own works or deserving. Now, who, who does that language remind you of? Martin Luther, okay. Reformation 101. Therefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Amen to Brother Luther. We like what he said, okay. Moving forward. Uh, now we're at the EUB Confession of Faith. We believe God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Gospel of John. Letters of Paul. The offering Christ freely made on the cross is the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, redeeming man from all sin so that no other satisfaction be required. Protestantism 101. Then we have a new article. Justification. And regeneration is another word for sanctification. We believe we are never accounted righteous before God through our works or merit, but that penitent sinners are justified and accounted righteous before God only by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Check one for Luther, okay? We like Luther. Then it goes on. We believe sanctification, in other words, regeneration, is the renewal of man in righteousness through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are made partakers of the divine nature. Does that ring any bells? Who was here last week? What is that? Theosis. Theosis actually made its way into the EUB statement because it's a profoundly Wesleyan Now, Wesley did not ever use the word theosis, but the idea that we become more and more like God, we'll see more of that in just a minute, and experience newness in life. But this new birth, or by this new birth, the believer becomes reconciled to God, that is called justification, and is enabled to serve him with the will and the affections, that is, sanctification. We believe, although we have experienced regeneration, sanctification, It is possible to depart from grace and fall from sin. Remember Wesley's comment when he defined our meaning to fall most foully. You know, we do not think once saved, always saved. So clearly Methodist thought here. We may even then by the grace of God be renewed in righteousness. Good works, 1500s. Although good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sin, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and spring out of the true and lively faith insomuch that by them the lively faith may be, may be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruit. Which is to say, this does not represent the more radical parts of Protestantism, but swings more to kind of a centrist view. Good works, 1900s, EUB. We believe good works are the necessary fruits. We up the ante here. We're more Methodist in thought. Necessary fruits of faith and follow regeneration. We believe good works, pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ spring from a true and living faith for through and by them faith is made evident. So within Methodist tradition, there's a stronger affirmation that faith and good works are not played off against each other. It's both. It's not one or the other. Sanctification. Now 1939, who knows what happens? This is your final exam of Methodism. 1939. North and the South and the Protestants. Okay. Because of the Civil War, the Methodist Church broke, and, and other reasons. But the Methodist Episcopal Church of the North, the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which many were taught was the one true holding the apostolic faith, by the way, <laughs> and the Methodist Protestants, who didn't like bishops, got together in 1939, and they formed the Methodist Church. When they did that, they realized, and with the articles of religion as Wesley had edited them, there was no statement about sanctification. And sanctification is the heart of Methodism. So they put one in. Even though the restrictive rule said you couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Therefore, it's not numbered, but it's in there. It's a a bizarre thing. Sanctification is that renewal of our fallen nature by the Holy Ghost, received through faith in Jesus Christ, whose blood of atonement cleanses us from all sin that is justification whereby we are not only delivered from the guilt of sin justification washed from its pollution saved by its power we are enabled through grace to love god with our whole hearts walk in his holy commandments blameless sanctification now this is so th- now we move to the eub statement which is a, a piece of poetry we believe sanctification is the work of God's grace through the word, through Jesus, and the spirit, by which those who have been born again are cleansed from sin and their thoughts, words, and acts, and are enabled to live in accordance with God's will and to strive for holiness, there's that Methodist language, without which no one will see the Lord. Run that Methodist flag right up the wall. Entire sanctification, there it is, Nowhere in the articles of religion, because this is a distinctly Wesleyan Methodist belief. Here it is. Entire sanctification, the only place I know it's actually defined, is a state of perfect love, righteousness, and true holiness, uh, which every regenerate, reborn believer may may obtain. You may have entire sanctification by being delivered from the power of sin. And this is straight out of John Wesley's, this is a John Wesley quote. By loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving one's neighbor as oneself. That's Wesley's definition of entire sanctification. You're not perfect in any other way other than it is possible to love God and love your neighbor totally in the moment. Two seconds later, you may fall from that. That's that's a different story, but it's possible to do that. Through faith in uh, Jesus Christ, this gracious gift May be received in this life either gradually or instantaneously. A little footnote from what Wesleyan history. Somebody once asked Wesley, But have you ever met anybody who had achieved entire sanctification in this life? Wesley said, I know some who claimed. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't too sure that he actually said. And actually, the claim made him wonder about whether it was actually solid. And should be sought earnestly by every child of God. So what is the the rubric for Methodists? We are the people who are going on to perfection. Okay, there it is. We believe this experience, it goes on and on. It's, It's a major piece. We believe this experience does not deliver us from the infirmities, ignorance, and mistakes common to man. We're not perfect in any other way. Nor from the possibilities of further sin. Two seconds later, you may hit the bottom. We must respond wholly to the will of God. So that, so that sin will lose its power over him. And I love this language. And the world, the flesh, and the devil. Any of y'all raised in that language? The world, the flesh, and the devil are put under his feet. Thus he rules over the enemies with watchfulness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Doctrine about the church. And again, Protestant language here. The visible church of Christ is the congregation of faithful, we would say people today in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments duly administered according to Christ's holy ordinance. That's a classic Protestant definition of the church. Uh, Moving forward 400 years, we believe the Christian church is a community of all true believers under the lordship of Christ. We believe in one, holy, apostolic, and Catholic. Couldn't use that word in the 1500s. It was a little scary. Couldn't say Catholic. 400 years later, we can move back. We can claim that. The Apostles' Creed. It is the, the redemptive fellowship in which the word of God is preached by those divinely called. Sacraments are duly administered according to Christ on appointment. Under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, the church exists. Why does the church exist? Well, to worship, to edify us, that we might grow in faith and that we might then impact the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful phrase statement. Judgment and the final state. Woo. Not one in the articles of religion, but there is one in the confession. We believe all men stand under the righteous judgment of Jesus Christ both now and in the last day. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, the righteous life eternal and the righteous to life eternal, the wicked to endless condemnation. Classic belief. Sacraments. Big difference here is Catholics have how many sacraments? We have how many? Why do we only have two? They're what? They're biblical. They're dominical. Domini in Latin. We are only the ones that Jesus said do it. Jesus said baptize where? Your Sunday school teacher is so worried about you right now. Matthew 28. Go therefore the and all the world. Baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and the Spirit. Communion. This do in remembrance of me. Where is the one on confirmation? It breaks my heart. <laughs> it's <laughs> not, not there. Okay. Uh, but rather by certain signs of grace. By God's good will toward us. He works invisibly within us. He quickens, strengthens, confirms the faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. Okay? That is to say, Baptism and the supper of the Lord. And that goes on to baptism. Now the big issue here is the my spiritual ancestors, the Baptists, would argue that the the their baptism and communion are not sacraments. Okay? Baptist theology, they're not sacraments. They are, what was the word we used earlier? Ordinances, and they are memorials, remembering. So what happens is we remember, you know. And no, in our tradition, they're sacraments. It's a channel of God's grace. God's grace can actually, there was an old Methodist bishop in the South who said where God, this is his definition of a sacrament I love, it's where God meets us by previous appointment. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Yeah. Old Southern gentleman. Baptism is not only a sign of profession, Baptist, Anabaptist, the sign of difference between Christians are distinguished from others who are not baptized. It is that, but it's more. It is also a sign of regeneration or new birth. And the sign there is a little kind of soft language. The baptism of young children is to be retained in the church. Okay. This one's kind of incomplete. The Lord's Supper. Again, the affirmation here is that it's not just a memorial. It is, in fact, a, 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 a sacrament, a channel of God's grace. Uh, the bread and the cup. Uh, but on the other hand, we want to say uh, transubstantiation, the change. We do not believe that because it cannot be attested to in Scripture. And then we have a little anti-Catholic rant here. Uh, <laughs> by is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthrows the nature of the sacrament, is given occasionally to many superstitions like our Catholic brethren at the road. <laughs> the body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only in a heavenly and spiritual manner. No transubstantiation, and the means whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten, supper by faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is not, by Christ's ordinance, reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshiped. Take that, Catholics. Okay. Four hundred years later, we fought that battle, we won. Okay. We believe the sacraments ordained by Christ are symbols and pledges of the Christian's profession and the God's love toward us. And our means of grace. That's the definition of sacrament. By which God works invisibly within us. Quickening, strengthening, confirming the faith in him. Two sacraments are ordained by Christ our Lord. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe baptism signifies entrance. It is the door. So for example, where do we become a Christian? In 1992 we revised our doctrinal standards. And we changed this uh, we used to say that uh, you would be baptized and when you were confirmed, you joined join the church. Well, actually, you remember the church by your baptism. That's basic Christianity 101. You become a professing member at confirmation, but you're a member of baptism. <coughs> Excuse me, that's uh, the early church's view of that. New birth in Christ, mark of Christian discipleship. We believe children are under the atonement of Christ as heirs to the kingdom of God. The early one just said, we believe children should be baptized. This actually gives the reason. They are heirs to the kingdom of God and ex- uh, acceptable subjects of Christian baptism. Children of believing parents through baptism become the special responsibility of the church. They should be nurtured and led to personal acceptance of Christ by the profession of faith. Confirm it. There is confirmation. Okay. Yes. Made it in. Thank you, EUB. We believe the Lord's Supper is a representation a representation of our redemption, a memorial of the sufferings of death in Christ, a token of love and union which Christians have with Christ with one another. Those who rightly, worthily in the faith eat, partake of the blood in a spiritual manner, then, then it's affirmed. So where does that leave us? We started with what many, many months ago? Christianity 101, New Testament, creeds, Moving into basic Christian beliefs, our own unique heritage within the Methodist tradition and some things. So the center of the Christian faith and the center of Methodism is that beliefs are not just doctrines. Beliefs also include life in the world. So we have this little thing in the Methodist church called the social principles. Yes, we're going to go there, even though it's highly, highly controversial. So next week, I want us to talk a little bit about just what they are and what they're about, and then we'll have three weeks to deal with all those controversial issues that drive you crazy.